Corinthians chapter 8 was 16 through chapter 9 was 5. I thank God who put into the heart of Titus the same concern I have for you. For Titus not only welcomed a repeal, but he's coming to you with much enthusiasm on his own initiative. And we are sending along with him the brother who is praised by all the churches for his service to the gospel. What is more, he was chosen by the churches to accompany us as we carry the offering, which we administer in order to honor the Lord himself and to show our eagerness to help. We want to avoid any criticism of the way we administer this liberal gift, for we are taking pains to do what is right, not only in the eyes of the Lord, but also in the eyes of men. In addition, we are sending with them a brother who has often proved to us in many ways that he is zealous, and now we even more so because of his great confidence in you. As for Titus, he is my partner and my fellow worker among you. As for our brothers, they are representatives of the churches and in honor to Christ. Therefore, show these men the proof of your love and the reason for our pride in you, so that the churches can see it. There is no need for me to write to you about this service to the saints, for I know your eagerness to help, and I have been boasting about it to the Macedonians, telling them that since last year you were in Acacia, you were ready to give, and your enthusiasm has stirred most of them to action. But I'm sending the brothers in order that are boasting about you in this matter should not prove hollow, but that you may be ready as I said you would be. For if any Macedonians come with me and find you unprepared, we, not to say anything about you, would be ashamed of having been so confident. So I thought it necessary to urge the brothers to visit you in advance and finish the arrangements for the generous gift you had promised. Then it will be ready as a generous gift, not as one grudgingly given. Glory be to God. Thank you, Jennifer. Okay. Well, there's an event happening next week on Sunday. Anybody know what that is? The Super Bowl. Yeah. So it's this, this little thing that if you're an American, you're probably aware of. But I was teaching a class on Thursday night, and I asked a few people in, in the class if they'd ever heard of the Super Bowl, and not a single person was aware of it. Um, they're from, from other, other countries, and it may come as a shock if you're an American, but not everybody knows about the Super Bowl. So I was explaining a little bit about how that's a big event. In the United States, um, some people get together to watch, actually watch the football. Uh, others come because they're interested in the halftime show, or maybe the commercials, or maybe if none of that interests you, there's food that is available uh, and if, if none of that interests you, then you, you just don't care. But you're aware of it. And most people have an opinion about the teams who are involved as well. And a, a lot of that has to do with your own backdrop, your own background. So I'm a Denver Broncos fan. And here in Cincinnati, when you say, if you're talking about the NFL, the National Football League, who do you root for? And usually here it would be Cincinnati Bengals, maybe an occasional... Pittsburgh Steeler or Cleveland Brown or Brown or something like that. But Denver Broncos, why? 
Well, it's because I was uh, influenced by where I grew up. I grew up out west, and the only team that was really close to where I grew up in Utah was next door, Colorado, and, and actually my father rooted for them. So we'd play games in, in the living room where I was a running back, and he was a linebacker, and I was trying to score a touchdown, and you know, I'd almost cross, and he'd grab my foot and drag me across, and and there were names associated with it. Otis Armstrong, number 24, my favorite running back ever. He was Randy Gratishar, actually an Ohio State linebacker who went out there. And so we played these things. So I'm shaped and influenced by where I grew up. I mean, I, I like football. I like the Denver Broncos. And other people like, you know, this guy named Tom Brady. And, and that kind of thing, too. And you're like, why if you're not? Because they grew up in a place where either Michigan or somewhere in New England, where his success was their success. And so you today might be thinking, I know nothing about the NFL, but I like cricket, or I like Bollywood, or something like that. You are shaped by the experiences you've had in life, your, your language, your food, um, your, your nation, uh, wherever you happen to grow up. Now, when Paul writes to these churches, he is saying that for everybody who's embraced faith in Christ, the shaping influence of your life is the gospel. Those other things still matter because he goes to different places. And, he, and in many respects, the Bible celebrates these expressions. But the shaping influence through which everything else is filtered is the gospel. That's what he's been arguing from the beginning of Corinthians. In fact, the way that the gospel changes your thinking, it shifts, it forms, it shapes the way that you look at relationships with other people, the way that you determine what's right and what's wrong. What food do I eat? When do I eat it? Who do I eat it with? That's pretty practical. How do I engage in, in, in relationships that are not just uh, in, in terms of communication, but even uh, physically before the face of God. What determines how I do that is the gospel. It's the good news that Christ came, that God saves sinners. And it affects absolutely everything. In fact, so much so that Paul can't write anything without talking about how this touches on those aspects of life. And so in this passage that we've already read... What I want us to invite to do and to consider together this morning is how the gospel shapes us in these particular ways that Paul is discussing in this passage. In fact, in the first few verses there, in, in verses 16 through 19, we see that Paul says the gospel expands our heart for others. That one of the ways the gospel shapes our perspective on things is how we look at others. And it just expands our heart so that we care about other people. Now, if you remember the context for all of this, Paul was somebody who was actually Jewish. And he did not like people who called themselves Christians, followers of Jesus. In fact, he decided, I'm going to... Uh, I'm going to make sure that they don't exist anymore. I'm going to try to kill them, right? So in Acts chapter 9, Acts talks about the beginning of this New Testament expression of God's people. He's on his way to, uh, to endorse the killing of some Christians. And he meets Jesus on the way. And his life is radically changed and turned upside down. And says, Christ says, now I'm going to shape what matters most to you. He said, I'm going to call you 
to go and to suffer for my name and to reach people that are totally different than you are, the Gentiles. So you got two categories in the Bible, Jew and Gentile. Those are the only ethnic categories, broadly speaking, that are central to the entire narrative of the Bible. So if you're not Jewish, you're Gentile. He was Jewish, but he's called to go and to minister to the Gentiles. So if you read the book of Acts, you know that he goes on a, a couple of missionary journeys and he's speaking to Jewish people, but they're largely rejecting him. He speaks also to Gentiles and many are becoming followers of Christ. And then when they, that happens, they're, they're bringing all these cultural realities and saying, well, what part of this is my culture and what part is Christ? And the Jewish segment of the church is saying, you need to do certain things that make you look like you're Jewish, like circumcision, for example, or abstain from certain kind of foods. And so there's this debate in the church in Acts chapter 15, the Jerusalem Council. And they say, how is it these Gentiles are saved? Is it because they become Jewish or is it become, they become followers of Christ? That's a really big category. And so they go back and forth. But there, Peter stands up. He, Peter was the guy who was the central figure in the Jerusalem church. And he says this, We believe it is through the grace of the Lord Jesus that we are saved, just as they are. How are you saved? How are you made right with God? Well, Peter says, it's through the grace of Jesus. It's through what he's done. It's not by obeying all these these, uh, these customs that we've brought into it, it's by trusting only in Christ. And he says, Peter says, and he had a hard time getting to that position. You can read about that in Acts chapter 8, in Acts chapter 10. He finally sees that before the face of God, what makes us right with him is trust in Jesus alone, period. That grace received to us is the same grace they've received. And so they give they give Paul his blessing and he goes out. That's in Acts chapter 15. And he's on his third missionary journey. And he, he takes this very circuitous route. And Eric put this up last week too. You see he started off in Antioch where that star is right here. And he, he, he kind of skirts all around here. And then he ends up all the way up through this place. And then in that first little boxed area, he goes through Macedonia. And there it's at Philippi and Thessalonica and Berea. You can read about that in, in, in Acts 16, 17, 18. He's planting these churches, and then he goes down here to Corinth, which is the letter that we've been looking at. And it's when he's in Corinth, then, that he spends a year and a half there and then writes a couple of different letters and, and whatnot, too, that he, uh, he's, he's writing back to them, and, and in chapter 8, he's talking about the generosity that these churches in Macedonia had and they had heard that there were people who were poor in Jerusalem. And God moved in their heart in such a way that they said, let's give money even though we don't have any because we know the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ is so overwhelming. And we've heard that these people are in need, so let's give to them. Now, do you think those two places are close to each other? They're pretty far apart and they're culturally very different. This church in Jerusalem was wondering if these people were even Christians at one point. But they're so moved by the grace of the Lord that they say, we want to give to them. And so Paul tells this church in Corinth, hey, have you heard about these people and their generosity? And they've been moved as well. And they also want to get in on this and send a gift to the, to the people in Jerusalem who are suffering. How is all this expansion of the heart? I mean, their hearts are expanding, right? They care about people 
who are way over there and who are very different than they are. How is this happening? And I've already hinted at it, at least in part. The very first way that this happens is the gospel itself is at work. And Eric talked about this last week. So just to remind you that the key point of what's happening with this gathering of a gift to be given to others is right there. It's, you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that grace they originally received, that though he was rich, yet for your sakes he became poor, so that you through his poverty might become rich. Christ, the Son of God, the eternal Holy One, sinless, became human, knew some of those limitations of being human, and more than that, took on sin, became the poorest of all. So that you, he's saying, you can know the riches of God. That came at a high price. It's Christ. He poured himself out on your behalf. Did you deserve it? No, neither did the Jews. God makes a big deal out of that. Don't think you're so great because I selected you. You're actually not. You're stiff-necked, stubborn individuals. I'm just using you as an example of my grace poured out on others. So get that. And if you do get that then, if that gospel message transforms your heart, then you become somebody who doesn't just care about yourself. You look up and care about others because just like your Lord, you're willing to become poor so others might know some richness. The gospel itself expands our hearts. And that's at least one of the things we see here. There's no room for superiority. There's no room for entitlement. There's no room for possessiveness. Paul says the Macedonian church got that. And one of the expressions is generosity. Now another thing that happens throughout this text, and just to look back at a second as well, the gospel expands our heart for others through storytelling. It's very interesting. Um, look what he says in chapter 8, verse 1. Now, brothers, we want you to know about the grace that God has given the Macedonian churches. He's storytelling. He, comes, he says to Corinth, I'm going to tell you a story about the Macedonian churches. And then it's really fun because a little bit later he, he talks about this as well to them uh, later. And he, he says, now I'm going to boast about your giving to Corinthian church to some other people as well. They're telling stories about how God's grace is at work and how it's manifesting in those churches over there. And so when you see that and you hear that, you're exposed to it, well, it does something to your own heart. It says, well, I want to be generous like that as well. Some of you know maybe what it's like to travel to different countries and to worship in different, a different context. I know I have great benefit in the times I've been able to do that. If I go, for example, to India, I'll, I'll, I'll see, the, as we go to, to villages, people waiting for hours to receive prayer. And I come back to the United States, and sometimes I struggle. I'm like, let's pray, and nobody shows up. You know why? We don't really need it, because we've got good bank accounts, or we've got good health care, or whatever the case may be. Maybe that's not fair. Maybe that doesn't apply to you. But it certainly does to me. I'm just exposing my own heart. I come back saying, I say I'm needy. One of the great proofs of that, the poverty of the soul that Jesus said is blessed, is somebody saying, I need you to pray for me. Because I don't have the resources in myself to get through this. And a lot of times it's cricket, chir- you know, cricket, cricket chirping in American churches because we kind of got it. We got a backup plan. 
And in places where there is none, the reliance on prayer is so profound. So when I go there, I'm, I'm challenged, you see. The storytelling is just looking at somebody else and the way that they approach God. And it tells my heart, I have to expand room for my heart to pray for God. I mean, this happens in, in any country I go to, Croatian churches. I'm like, wow, they're so hospitable. I remember being in the Ukraine one time, too, just when the wall had come down, too. And these people had nothing, only had running water for two hours in a day. And they're putting out tremendous spreads before us. They don't have enough food. Why are they doing that? Because they're so hospitable. They're overcome. And some of it may be cultural, but in these contexts, it's culture plus Christ. And poof, there's an explosion of awesomeness that happens in those settings. When I'm in Japan where Christianity is very, very low, I think, wow, the perseverance of faithful servants who for generations have seen no harvest whatsoever. I come back and I think, why would I get discouraged so easily? See, this is storytelling that Paul seems to be in favor of. And he's not doing it in a way that we're motivated by guilt. You guys, and maybe I've done that. You don't pray. Feel guilty. I didn't intend for you to feel guilty. If you do, take it to the Lord. <laughs> it's, 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 so you, it's to stir the soul and say, hmm, I can learn from that. And I, 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 I'm, I'm leaning more into the realities of the fact that Christ has given me so much and I'm dependent fully on him. And I see believers in other places demonstrating that more. And it, it pulls me into a bigger story than just my own. Paul seems to be in favor of doing that. And then, finally, and, and related to this, here we see connections across locations and even across culture. We have multiple names mentioned here. Paul himself, as we said, had a Jewish background. And then Titus was a Greek from Crete. We have some mysterious people mentioned here. Their names aren't given, but they're not from Corinth. Uh, look at what verse 18 says. We are sending along with him the brother who is praised by all the churches for his service to the gospel. So he's sending people. And it happens in a later verse. There's another brother. They're being sent to go to this church in Corinth. Now that their generosity is coming around and they're receiving this collection. And when that happens, then, there's connections both across that city and this city and even in many respects cultural. So I'm going to give you a very, very practical application for this. And maybe you've already figured it out. Some of you may have taken your bulletins and said, what's this little insert here that's different than normal? I'm giving you a worship service challenge. So I don't know how many churches there are where the pastor says, go to somebody else's church. But I'm telling you to do it. I want to challenge you really on two levels. And... You've got three months to do it. And we're a smaller church, so so many people are involved. Find that one Sunday when you don't have a role, maybe. And then in the next three months, we are encouraging you and your family to go to a worship service where you feel like a minority. That's the main goal. Now, some of you already feel like, or are, a minority here. So, okay, you're exempt from it. <laughs> Unless you want another experience, that's fine. But for those of us, maybe, who, uh, who we're in the majority culture, this is a challenge so that you can see the gospel at work. The storytelling piece is just, it's different expressions. 
as well that ought to encourage or challenge our hearts and making connections that are deeper than the ones we're limited to if we're only going to one expression. I want you to see the beauty and the breadth of God's people. And since our vision is what it is to become a multi-ethnic church of influence, if you're somebody who is a minority here, whether that's culturally in the States or even just from a different country, there are some challenges when you come to an American church uh, or a church's majority culture. You're giving up some preferences. I'd like the people who are in the majority to know a little bit of what that feels like so that you can appreciate the sacrifice some people are making by coming to Redeemer and be a little more aware of, uh, of, of what that experience is like. It's just a tiny little taster. I know it's not the same thing. There are a lot of great churches out there um, that you can go to. I'm going to talk about that in a moment. But the bonus challenge is this. I want you to go to there and then tell me that you did that. Come to me and say, hey, this is the church that we went to. And process that a little bit. What was the overall experience like? Did you find yourself giving up a preference? And how does that shape your perspective of what it means to be somebody coming to Redeemer who's not in the majority culture? So what churches can you go to? You can go to any. But on the back side, I've listed some churches I, I have a relationship with already, and there are more than this. This doesn't cover every language and every people group. But on the back, you'll see some options. One is the Cincinnati Chinese Church, which is right here in Mason. And I've given the website there. The pastors, each of these pastors I have a relationship with, they know that you might show up, and they're not going to be disappointed if you don't come back the next week. It's okay. They've said, we understand uh, what you're doing, and we, uh, we're on board with that. And I've given you the information about each. So Cincinnati Chinese Church, which is... A vast majority Chinese, the service is in Chinese, they do provide some translation, so that's good. You'll get to know what it's like if somebody's using the translator app a little bit today as well. Uh, another option is the Korean Central Presbyterian Church. They're actually a PCA church, so they're within our, our own denomination, and they're kind of in a, an area, if you, if you go there, you'll wonder if you're going to the, to the right place. If you're not wondering, you're not in the right place. It's, <laughs> it's, it's sort of, a, you know, it's kind of back roads and a line of almost storefront type things. And they have just done a great job once you enter the doors of transforming that area into worship space. Smaller church, the Cincinnati Chinese Church would be the biggest of these two, several hundred on a Sunday morning. But the Korean Central Presbyterian Church is probably 40, 50. Uh, and almost 100% Korean. It's also in Korean, but they'll provide English translation. You could also go to the Great Commission Bible Church, which is largely a, a black church. And some of you know Delano Robinson. He preaches here from time to time. Um, his church, as you can see where it is here located to, uh, is, uh, is another option for you to, to experience. It won't be a translation issue if you're an English speaker, but definitely culturally different. And then another option is a good friend of mine, Chris Woodard, who's downtown. This is the farthest church away downtown in the West End, not far from FCC Stadium. Um, uh, they're called River of Life. It's a multi-ethnic church, but majority is going to be African-American, and he's, uh, he himself is African-American as the pastor. Some of you may remember Sam Baker, if you've been around for a long time. He used to lead our music, and he's on staff down there at River of Life. 
So, and you can go somewhere else. You know, uh, some others might know some other great options. But I'm going to put that out there, and we'll try to keep reminding you to do this so that hopefully you come back with a heart that's expanded just a little bit more. Don't worry, the other points aren't as long as this one. The next, next thing that we learn about how the gospel shapes us in this passage is in the next few verses here, we see that the gospel compels us to do the right thing. How does the gospel shape us? How does believing in Christ make a difference? Expands our heart, but also presses on us that there's a right thing to do and we should do it. And Paul here is saying in verse 20, we want to avoid any criticism of the way we administer this liberal gift. He knows they've given lots of money. Let's make sure we handle it well. We're taking pains to do what is right. And the doing what is right is not just according to what men say, but also what God says. That's two different things sometimes. So there's extra integrity sprinkled in here too, to say, what is it that's right before God for me to do? What's the right thing? That's something that faithful servants ought to be striving for, and that's how the gospel shapes our very hearts in such a way that we actually care about this stuff. So he's definitely safeguarding from accusation. He doesn't want any space for concern about what's happening. And you know, money is one of those areas that people get concerned about. <laughs> Understandably so. You don't want to mismanage funds. People have entrusted it to you. There's a stewardship issue here. This is a huge issue in the Bible, how the gospel shapes us. How do I steward what God, God has given me and what he's entrusted to a church as well in a way that's, that's right, not only before men, but also before God. In verse 23, he says, our brothers who are representatives of the churches and honor Christ. Those are men he's selecting, people who are representatives of other churches who are known to be honorable so they don't make any missteps along the way. And I'm guessing that if you've been around in the church very long, you know how much damage can come when somebody who's a leader in the church or a church mismanages something, whether it's funds or a moral issue as well that's hidden or not addressed. And the damage is extensive and far-reaching and very difficult to get over sometimes. And many people leave the church for that reason. So if you're in a position of leadership, you better be concerned about integrity. And one, it's easy to kind of put it aside and, and, and be led astray. And, and we know that because Jeremiah 17 reminds us the heart is deceitful above all things. So it's good and wise to build systems of accountability in. This is why we have it. Not only personally, but I think even organizationally. One of the benefits of being attached to a denomination, and there's good things and bad things about it, especially like ours in the Presbyterian Church in America, is there is actually accountability across different levels. So I'm held accountable by the elders of the church. And the elders of the church are held accountable by a region of churches. And we actually are held accountable in that space, and then nationally as well. Even with our use of funds that you entrust to us, we have a bookkeeper who's not even a part of Redeemer, and we have a treasurer, and the bookkeeper is writing checks, and the treasurer is approving. So these are just little examples of how you want to build in accountability so that you can trust things are being managed well. 
But we all know even with the greatest effort, sometimes people find ways because our hearts uh, wander to, to lean into something that's more self-serving. And if you're familiar with it, I can think of a ministry that I've been attached to that's been devastated by, by this in terms of finances that were being used by somebody personally, and it's just crushing. So that's not a great example of the gospel shapes you, right, in, in such a way that there should be not just this sense of I'm a maverick, but you're willing to have accountability. I mean, if, if you're somebody in a position of authority, you're unwilling to have accountability, that's not the gospel way. Because the gospel is organic and it's also collective. In 1 Corinthians 12, we're all parts of a body. What you do does make a difference to me. And it's, it's, it's because we are not healthy unless we're connected in that sort of way. So if you're trying to hide something, that's a good signal that you're not letting the gospel shape you. Something else is. Somebody else is trying to entice you to steal and kill and destroy. And there's no life that comes from that. Now, if that's the case and you know it, what do you do? Well, Paul already talked about it. Godly sorrow leads to repentance and leaves no regret, brings salvation. Worldly sorrow, well, worldly sorrow leads to death. If you're hiding, if you're not open to accountability, if you're trying to, that's worldly sorrow. That's not the gospel pathway. You're being shaped by values that aren't biblical. And so that's a great opportunity to pray. Maybe you're not a pastor or a leader and to say, I am in my family or a place of employment or as a student. What am I doing, God? Am I doing what's right before your eyes and others? See, that's a gospel value. Do you see that? That's how the gospel shapes you. You can be honest about it. Because there's a pathway, not to destruction, but to life. And as long as you're kind of cherishing that and hiding, well, you're not going to know life. But the gospel says Christ died on your behalf so you can be honest about things. And Paul realizes that he needs to make sure there's some systems of accountability in place. And that also helps us do the right thing. Now finally, the gospel shapes us in these final passages by inspiring us to finish what we started the way we started. Uh, that's also back in, in, in chapter 8, uh, verse 11. He, he says, I want you to finish what you started. So there was all this excitement about, let's give. And then there's a delay time. And then the process, bills come in. And people need backpacks. And the donkey, you know, stopped working right. Needs a new engine. And, and, and all this stuff happened. And then by the time people finally come and say, where's, where's this collection? You're like, about that. <laughs> Some things came up, you know, along the way. So he's sending these people and he's saying, don't, you know, when they show up, don't back out of this. Finish what you started. You had an enthusiasm and excitement and I've talked about it with others. And so do it. Let it be, let it be the way that you said it was going to be. He encourages them to finish what he started, not just in words, but he knows they need others to do that. He's sending these brothers not only for accountability, but for also for inspiration to finish. And, you know, you heard Hebrews mentioned earlier, but here's a consideration as well. When there's a word for perseverance that is needed, in the author of Hebrews gives it and says, let's consider how we spur one another on toward good deeds. So that's happening in the Corinthian church, but Paul's saying, look, I know we need others as well to come alongside so that you can finish what you started. 
And it's not just what you started, it's the way you started. You see in verse, uh, chapter 9, verse 5 there as well. I thought it necessary to urge the brothers to visit you in advance and finish the arrangements for the generous gift you'd promised. Then it will be ready as a generous gift, not as one grudgingly given. They started with a joy to give what God had, has, has trusted to them because of Christ. It's the same thing that Christ did. And then along the way you start thinking, hmm, I'm giving a lot of money. And so now somebody's coming to collect it. I feel like I'm being forced to do it. Instead, see, our hearts are so shifty. This is why the gospel has to be preached to them constantly. All the time. We have to remind ourselves all the time. And we can shift motive very, very, very quickly. This gift was given out of generosity because of the grace they knew in Christ. Not out of guilt or compulsion or to avoid shame. And it's easy to get off track with motive. Always. Marriages, parenting, work, money, whatever the case may be. And that's why we have to cultivate intimacy with Christ. That's why we gather on a weekly basis. Let's, let's not forget what God has done. Let's continue equipping our, ourselves. Let's make good on what we have said God is doing among us. That's why we share stories of grace to, to draw encouragement from one another. And lots of storytelling that we try to cultivate here hopefully at Redeemer, that reminds us of all the good that's coming as we pursue Christ together. And it strikes me that we need to remember here what Paul would write to the Macedonian church. Remember one of the Macedonian churches was Philippi? In Philippians 1.6, this may be something you're familiar with. Being confident of this, that he who began a good work in you will carry it on to completion until the day of Christ Jesus. So God himself is committed to you. If you're somebody who says, I want the gospel to shape me, I understand that before God, I, have, I cannot stand. I need something else. Christ, who was sent on my behalf, he became poor so I can know the riches of the mercy of a relationship with God. That happens only through Christ. That's what Paul has said. If he came preaching Christ and him crucified, that's what he does, not with wise and persuasive words, but God's spirit takes that basic message and, and works in somebody to say, I believe it's true, and then I'm going to follow on that path. And then it's a journey, but it's not a lonely journey. It's a collective one that we do together in community. But will we finish? Will we falter? Well, we know that God says, I'm, not, I'm fully committed to you. I'm, Paul reminds the Philippian church, one of those Macedonian churches, that he is confident that the one who began a good work in them will carry it on to completion. Christ's commitment to us is the foundation for any follow-through that we'll ever have on our own part. And for any pursuit of integrity that we have, and for any hope of actually expanding our hearts. It's not a social experiment. This is a spiritual renewal that can only happen with a God who promises to make it so and gives you his spirit to complete it. And that's because, as you see here, Christ himself finished what he started. He did it the way he started. Christ always did the right thing. And Christ had a heart for others. Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. He had done nothing wrong. And yet his heart was for them. And he came... And he obeyed perfectly, learned obedience, says Hebrews, from what he suffered. He always did the right thing. 
and he finished what he started. That's the only reason I, a Gentile, can be up here today saying to you, what about you? Do you know this, Christ? Do you, do you, do you know how amazing it is to let the gospel shape you in such a way that you can come and know peace, but also be in relationship? And when things get difficult, you can together open up God's word and say, how do we get through this in a way that's beautiful? It doesn't mean it's not hard. But there's something redemptive, even in the darkness that comes, whether it's out of a historical reality of a nation or the storyline of all of humanity. That's what God's in the business of doing, finishing what he started in you and in us as well. And that is the gospel that Paul is calling these people to walk in. You know, most of us are Gentiles here this morning, maybe one or two, I don't know, of Jewish origin. Aren't you glad that Christ had a heart for the other? Because you are the other. We always try to think of ourselves like, I'm the standard and everybody else is different. That's ridiculous. There's no room for superiority in this. This is, this is, this is why we come together and we say, okay, here we are, looking to you, Lord. What does this look like for us to be faithful stewards now where we are together and let that gospel continue to shape us. So I, I hope you'll take me up on that challenge because I think it will, I think it'll help. I don't know. It'd be interesting to see. I know what I think and whatever actually happens. Two very different things always in my life. So I'm just very interested to see what's going to happen if you, if you take this opportunity up. You know, and I come here some Sunday and I'm just preaching to myself. That's okay. That's okay. It's, God, God will do what he wants to do. Um, but hopefully you see in this passage an opportunity for us uh, to, to, to learn more about how that gospel shapes us. And Father, I do pray for that, that our hearts would be open to the way the good news of Christ shapes us. And boy, forgive us sometimes for thinking it's just a category or a box that we check. And this is a living relationship with a God who spoke life into us. Not only physical life, but for those of us who are uh, followers of Christ's spiritual life. So that we look at the world differently. And that difference is a, is a good thing. It's something that ought to compel us to, to have a heart for the other. And, and make us people of integrity and show us where we're not so we can be honest about that. And whatever we've started, we pray we'd finish. And we thank you that we have Christ who is faithful to the end as our not just a, a model, but the one who has is, is sealed it and secured it. Because uh, we'll continue to fail. And just help us to be honest about that. Uh, Father, we plead for your grace to be rich among us, individually and collectively. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.